0: And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or angel or lands or, or, or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold... And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray for your spirit to now come among us and instruct us, instruct our minds, instruct our hearts, that you would teach us what repentance is, that we might turn away from our sin. You would also teach us faith, that we would rest in your love and your goodness to us. And so now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, you know, I remember as a child, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't re- grow up in a religious environment, and um, yeah, I remember even when I was, you know, maybe eight, ten years old as a little boy, I distinctly remember regularly sitting in my bed, looking out the window, wondering, what is the meaning of life? And I would look at the sky, the blue sky, and, and you know, was, I really, because I was certain there was a meaning to life. And I was also certain that no one knew what it was. And everyone was just guessing. Everyone was just trying to guess. What, like, why are you here? Why do I even exist? Why are there trees and birds? Why is this place here? And even as a young boy, I often thought about this. And I, you know, I didn't have anyone talking. I didn't have any of you to come and tell me why, what the meaning of life was. And actually, it wasn't in, until I'd been a Christian for a long time that I remembered that. That that was a question I always had. And I was like, oh, Christians know. I'd been a Christian for a long time. I didn't realize that... I had learned what the meaning of life was from Jesus. And it is indeed possible to know why you are here, what this life is about. And in this passage, uh, it says in verse 16, Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? Which is essentially to ask How do you live right? What do I need to do in order to have a life that was done right? Whatever I was supposed to do here, I did it right. Tell me, tell me, what's the answer? What's the meaning? What's it all about? And in Jesus' response, we find out that he actually answers three questions for this man. It's these three questions that we're going to look at together this morning, and this is what they are. First, you need to answer, what is not the meaning of life? Before you answer what the meaning of life is, you have to first, what is not the meaning of life? Then you can second answer, what is the meaning of life? But then you need to answer a third question. How do we find it? How do we find that meaning of why we exist and why we're here? Big questions this morning. Uh, and, um, and I'll just tell you, you know, by the way, throughout the Gospels, Jesus has these conversations with people. If, you've ever, uh, if you haven't read through the Bible before, read through the Gospels, and you'll find that Jesus has these encounters where he meets people and he has a conversation with them, and they're profound. And what much of the Gospels are is that we get to listen in on those conversations. And so this morning we get to listen in on one of those conversations, and we're going to hear the answer to these three questions. So the first one is this. First of all, what is not the meaning of life? And this passage warns us that there are two things that we might be tempted to look to for meaning, but will ultimately fail us. And the two things are morals and money. Two things that you might look to to base your life on and say, this is what means, says my life is meaningful are either morals or money, and both will fail you. So first of all, morals cannot give meaning to your life. Um, which, means, which says that if you say to yourself, you know, the way that I'm going to have a meaningful life is I'm going to be a decent guy, I'm not going to be that bad of a person. I'm certainly not going to be as bad as that person down the street or you know, the person that I saw on the news. You know, I, I haven't done any serious sins. That kind of strategy will not satisfy the longings in your life. It simply won't work, And um, which I think is surprising to you. It may be surprising to some of you, because some of you, as you come here to church and you're going to hear about the Bible, you might think, I thought that's what the Bible is all about. It's about morals. It's a book about telling you how to be a good person. That's actually not what the Bible is about. The Bible tells a story about humanity is immoral, is sinful, and about a God who comes and rescues a sinful humanity. So it's not telling you how to be a good person. It's telling you about, not something about you do, it's something God does is what the Bible is primarily about. And you see this here in verse 16. It says again, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's how he's singing. He's singing in terms of morals. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, of course, Jesus is forcing this guy to think and answer that question. He say, Well, Jesus says there's only one person who's good, and you're saying I'm good. God is the only one who's good. What does that say about Jesus? And this is a clue that Jesus is actually God become a man and walked among us and spoke among us. But what Jesus is doing here is he is challenging our understanding of what goodness is. Um, what our understanding of a good moral person is incredibly too small. Okay, it's someone who just kind of follows the rules and doesn't do anything, you know, too bad. But um, we don't have an idea of goodness, of this breathtaking, beautiful goodness that Jesus understands is what goodness is. And, you know, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in the 40s called A Preface to Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost was this epic... Uh, poem from the 16th century by John Milton, which was basically a poem about the fall of man, about Adam and Eve, and when Satan came and tempted them, and how they sinned and everything, it's made into this elaborate story. And um, one of the things, if if, if you don't know anything about Paradise Lost, um, the reason that Paradise Lost has been read for centuries is because the main character in the story is Satan. And literary critics throughout, for centuries, have said that Satan is a masterpiece, He's done so well. He's so compelling. He's insane, but you relate to him in so many ways. And, and yet, if you read um, Adam, how Milton depicts Adam, who is, is actually supposed to be a good person, who's in the garden and he hasn't fallen, he doesn't have sin yet, he's really boring. He's kind of two-dimensional. And you say, what's up? Why, why are we so compelled by the evil Satan and we're so bored by the good Adam? And what Lewis says is because we don't know what goodness is. Milton didn't know what goodness was. So he couldn't even create a good person. He didn't know how to do it. But he could create a very compelling Satan because of the Satan that was in him. And he says the reason we receive Satan so easily in the narrative is because of the Satan that's within each one of us. And so we don't know what goodness is. And the reason that morals cannot give meaning to your life is you cannot take a list of rules and good things to do and slap them on a heart that is not good. It simply won't make that heart good. It doesn't work. So you see this here. In the end of verse 17, Jesus says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. And then listen to this. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept... What do I still lack? And this is an amazing thing. Here's a guy who's lived what appears to be an impeccably moral life. He's a decent guy. Any one of us, if we met him, we say he's a decent guy. And yet he admits there is something missing in his life. He knows that he has not found the meaning. He's not found eternal life. He's not, fa- he's not connected to God. He has not found radical, beautiful goodness. It is possible to have a heart void of goodness, void of gratitude, void of joy, void of kindness, and yet still live a life devoted to morals. Do you know that? You could try to live a moral life and yet your heart is never changed. And um, uh, if you look to a list of good things you do and think, see, I'm a decent human being, I'm better than that guy, you will not find satisfaction for your life, okay? So this is the first surprising thing, is that Jesus says that, first of all, morals cannot give meaning to your life. But he also finds the second thing about this man, that it's not just morals didn't satisfy him, that he was still lacking something, but he also found that money cannot satisfy your life either. And, uh, you know, some people... uh, Try to give meaning to their life by being moral, right? They they do good things and they tell themselves they're doing good things and they care for the poor and they be kind to people and they don't swear and they don't see bad movies. Other people try to find meaning for their lives through being successful, right? Accumulating wealth, making money, making you know accomplishments, finding comfort for their lives. And they said, Because I've accumulated all these things, I feel like I'm living a good life. Well, Jesus exposes this man's love of the love of money in this man's heart. Look at what it says, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, now listen to this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So Jesus says to man, well, okay, you want to find out what's in your heart, sell everything and come and follow me. And it's interesting, it says that the man, he, he had great possessions, so he, he was sorrowful. And that same word for sorrowful is actually used again later in Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the night before Jesus was crucified, he was being betrayed by one of his best friends, and uh, he was going to be crucified the next day, and the wrath of God was going to fall upon him, and, and you know, God was going to turn his face away from Jesus. And it says in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus began to be sorrowful. And troubled, the same experience that this man had about losing his possessions, Jesus felt about losing his father. This is what uh, this is what Tim Keller puts it this way: when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself, to lose what little sense he had of having uh, covered the stain. You see what he's saying? Is we're supposed to find our identity in who God is, and that this man had found his identity in his possessions, in his money, in his accomplishments, in his wealth. And um, how do you know if money and possessions have become the meaning of your life? Imagine yourself without them. Who are you without your possessions and your money? Or your accomplishments? Are you, are you a loser? Are you a nobody if you don't have those things? How do you view yourself? And I think, of course, you know, the best evidence that you cannot find meaning for your life in, in you know, accomplishments and money and wealth and possessions is because you put yourself at the end of your life when you're dying and you're on your deathbed and, of course, we've all heard this story over and over again where people say, I, "I, you know, people got to their deathbed and they found the only, I had spent my whole life working. I would spent my whole life uh, accumulating wealth and I got there and I found that it was all meaningless. It meant nothing to me. And so there are two ways to fail to find meaning for your life. Either in trying to be a good moral person or in trying to be a self-serving person, where you're, you're accumulating wealth and comfort for yourself. Both will fail. And so it's only when we first answer the question, what is not the meaning of life, that we can now answer the question, well, what then is the meaning of life? And again, there are two answers. And the two answers are, the meaning of life are the Lord and love. The Lord and love. And I'll start with love. Because you see that Jesus asked, uh, you know, this man asked, what do I still lack? In verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. Um, Jesus says that a complete life is a life um, that is putting others before yourself. Finding out what it means to actually love the weak and the broken, and love the people that that are put in your life. And, you know, some of you will say, well, you know, isn't love morals? You just said that, you know, life cannot be built on morals. But what love is, is actually a transformation of your, your inner life. You can take morals and put them on a bitter, begrudging, envious heart and still do a list of morals. But love is a transformed heart where you really have compassion for other people. Your heart actually turns for them. And your motivations are really for the good of other people. And, um, and one of the things about both morals and money is that morals and money you can both do by yourself. They can both totally serve yourself, right? If you have a list of morals, you can do them all, and it's really to make me feel good about myself. Or you can have money that you can accumulate for yourself. Love you cannot do by yourself. It requires other people. And the, reasons why, the reason why Christians say that the meaning of life is love is, of course, because God himself is love. And, you know, what Christians have insisted upon since the earliest Christians was that there is one God who is in heaven. And that one God exists in what? Three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That God is a community. God himself is love. And these, these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who listen to one another. And they pour themselves out for one another, and they honor one another, and they serve one another, and they, you know, they do what's asked of one another. All of these things is the very community of what God's life is, and he wants to bring us into that. And the reason, one of the reasons that's really important to know that God is love in these three is because for most of us, we think that what love is, is love is kind of an energy, it's a power in the universe, it's you know it's a warm fuzzy that giant warm fuzzy in the universe that if I can t- get touched into I can have good feelings in my life. But again, if love is only an energy of power, it's something I can do by myself. But if love is the personal love of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it demands of us community. It demands of us relationship, and that that's what a rich and meaningful life is. And it's this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who actually invented this world together, creatively, working together, created all things. And it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are drawing us in and redeeming us and changing our lives and forgiving our sins and renewing our lives. And so love is the centerpiece of all existence. But how does then love become the centerpiece of my own life? And this is the second thing that's the meaning of life. It's not just love, but also the Lord himself. Jesus says to this man, come and follow me. Um, Another issue about thinking about love as simply an energy is that the Bible says that love is not a feeling, but love is an event. Love is an action. And I know for most of you, when... uh, you have someone who's made you know, a real impact on your life, who you really felt profoundly loved by, that they, you know, they put you ahead of themselves, you can always name something that they did for you. It was that time they said, you know, they said a kind word, or they showed up at your house with a meal, or they, they took your kids when you were just like, I was like ah, and they you know, helped you with your kids. They did something where they showed up for you. Love was not just a feeling that they felt in their heart, that was a part of it, but it showed up in an action. And for us to know the Lord's love, it's not enough to just know that God is some energy in the sky, that he has warm feelings towards all of us. We need to know what did God do for us. And what the Bible says is that God did for us is that he came as a man in Jesus, and he walked among us. And all the misery that we experience in this life, Jesus experienced with us. And he took our alienation uh, from God, our distance from God, the wrath of God, the punishment for all our sins. He took them on our place, on the cross. And so God's love is not a vague feeling, it's an action, it's an event that God uh, did for us. in Jesus, it's concrete. And so Jesus, who concretely loves us, invites us to come and follow him and to live our life with him, to walk with him. Now, I know, you know, for some of you, as we read this passage, you know, Jesus says, man, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And, you know, there's some question, did, did Jesus tell all of us to do that, to sell all we have and give to the poor? And I think he's talking specifically to this guy, because we know in other parts uh, of, of the New Testament, there are people that still had possessions and they were still walking with the Lord and honoring the Lord. And Jesus will say to some of us to sell all that we have. And some of you might say, would anyone do that? Sell all their possessions and just go be a Christian and be with Jesus. And you know, actually, just this last week, I was, uh, I was having lunch with Mike Scaff. Some of you might know Mike Scaff, he works down at the, the Lighthouse Mission. And um, I was hearing a little bit about his story. And he, he had, was living in California, had a, a good job uh, down there, and um, he had become a Christian, he'd come into a church. And yet, for many years of his life, he had struggled with addictions. And even as he became a Christian, he found himself continuing to going back to the substances that that he'd been struggling with. And so a uh, a friend of his said, "You know, there's a year-long recovery program up in Bellingham, Washington. He lived down in San Diego or something like that. Up in Bellingham. I don't even know how this guy heard of it. But it's a really good program. You should go up there and check it out." And so you know what he did? He sold everything <laughs> and he moved up to Bellingham and put himself in a recovery program. And, you know, I'm talking to him this week. His life's totally changed. And he said, there's no question it was the best decision of my life. And uh, does he have the wealth that he had before? No. But he'd say, I have Jesus. And most of us, we put ourselves in this young man's shoes and we say, if Jesus was standing right here and says, sell all you have and you can come and sit under me and learn from me and walk with me and experience, um, you know, preaching the gospel to people and healing people and caring for the poor, you could do that with me. I think a lot of us would do that. I would say I'd go walk with Jesus, you know. I would do that. I really think I would. I think many of you would. Because to walk with him and to be with him, but the reality is that Jesus says he's still with us. Would we forsake our possessions or or the things that we find our identity in here now to go be with him? It is possible. Okay? And so the meaning of life is to know love Himself. Jesus is love in a person, and it's when you know love Himself, love becomes the defining, most important reality of your life. Okay. But the third question is then, how do how does that happen? How does my life now become not about morals and money, but about the Lord and about love, and uh, well, let me just say it's a bit of a misqu- misleading question. How do you find the meaning of life? Well, actually, the Bible says you don't find the meaning of life. The meaning of life finds you. The meaning of life is not something that you do. It is something that God has done. And we see that that's true in three ways in this passage. I'm going to say these briefly. That First of all, we have to see that Jesus lived the only truly meaningful life. Jesus lived the only truly, truly deeply perfect, meaningful life. So when Jesus says to this young man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And of course, this man doesn't do it. He walks away sorrowful. And so you have this question, who's going to do this? And the whole gospel is about Jesus giving these demands, and then what does Jesus do? He does them all. He fulfills them on our behalf. And so one of the things, the way that we find meaning in our life is that all the demands on living a full and beautiful and good life that we haven't fulfilled, we find out that Jesus has fulfilled them in our place, on our behalf. That Jesus has lived the life that we should have lived, and he's died the death that we should have died, so that when we're thinking about the meaning of life, it's not about me performing for God, trying to prove myself to God that I'm good enough for him, but it's about receiving the life that Jesus has already lived in my place. And so that's, that's what, the first way. How do I find the meaning of my life? First of all, I have to see that Jesus is the only one who's lived uh, a meaning, meaningful life. But second, we see that God must change our hearts. If you are going to find true meaning, God must work a miracle in your heart. And look at verse 23 again. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? This is kind of an interesting saying, because Jesus says... It's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and I think most of us hear that and we say, "Okay, that makes sense." They're thinking more about their possessions than about God, and they're serving themselves instead of serving others. That kind of makes sense to us. But actually, in the ancient, but then the the disciples are kind of astonished by this. They say, "What a rich man can't get into heaven! What? How are are the rest of us going to get in then?" And the reason for that is because in the ancient world, if someone had wealth, people viewed that that they had God's favor. That's why they had wealth. They must be a good person. The gods must love them or why else would they have all this wealth? And so when Jesus says, if the rich person can't even get in, the disciples hear that and say, well, the rich person has God's favor and it's hard for them to get in. How is anyone else going to get in? And Jesus answers that and um, he acknowledges that it's a miracle. And he says in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible But with God, all things are possible. Man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. One of the things the Bible teaches is for us to know the Lord, to have a life defined by Him, not by our performance of being a good, decent human being or by our accomplishments and our wealth, but to have a life defined by the Lord the Holy Spirit has to do a miracle in our life to change the things that we love. And the way the Bible describes this is that God has to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Amputation, new heart, new desires. And some of you experienced that. There were certain things, you had certain priorities in your life, and, and you say, oh, you know, Christians, they're always talking about the Lord and the Bible and all these things and loving people, serving people. And then all of a sudden, you heard the gospel and it all of a sudden it made sense. And the things that you love, the things that you desire is almost instantaneously changed. This is a work of God that He does in our hearts. We can't do it ourselves. And for some of you, say, I want that to happen. You can't make it happen. You have the Lord has to do it in you. And so the best thing you can do is you can ask the Lord. Jesus says, if you Fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We ask him, and he will change our loves and change our desires and set them on the things of the Lord. God has to come and change our hearts. So, how do we find meaning of the life? Is first of all we have to acknowledge that Jesus has lived the only meaningful life. Second, we have to rec- see that God has to do a miracle in my heart to change the things that I actually love so I start to love the things that he loves. But I think the last thing is this, is that we have to see that a new world is coming. I, this is one of my favorite sayings, <laughs> Jesus, right here, in verse 28. Then Peter said to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children of lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will will be last in the last first. Jesus has this picture of a new world is coming where he is seated on a throne and he is the king and we live under his rule. And this is an amazing thing that he says that actually the truly meaningful life is not right now. We are waiting for the truly meaningful life. And that there are all these things about this life and many of you feel that way, you know, you, you look at this world and you say, this world has the potential to, have a very, to be very meaningful. But you can't quite get it. It's, it you, you know, you can't quite touch it. You grab for it and it's just not there. And the reason is because the truly meaningful life is coming in a new world where Jesus will come again and rid this world of all evil and all suffering. And he says, if you follow me, you can have a share in that world. And when you have a share in that world, this vision of a future world, it begins to come back into your life now, and the future meaningful life comes into your life now and gives you meaning in your life now as you look forward to that. And, you know, to quote C.S. Lewis one more time, he says about that new world, it's like a story that never ends, where every chapter is better than the last one. That's, that's what we have in Jesus, is a share in this new world. So our challenge this morning what do you look to to say that your life has meaning? Is it being a decent human being? Is it wealth? Is it accomplishment? Is it, is it money? Is it possessions? Jesus invites you to simply repent and receive his love that he has lived the perfectly meaningful life on your behalf. And God will send the Spirit to open your heart to know that there's a new world coming and you can have a share in it through him. Let's pray together.